Hey, Holly here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to share some information with you about some workshops that we're running. Here at Ashore Product Science, we love to teach workshops, both public workshops, private workshops at companies, and even an online workshop for people who can't come to see us in person. If you're interested in learning how to identify the right products and features to build and how to develop the support to do so with the product science method, come and join us. You can learn more at ashoreproductscience.com workshops. Hi, and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. Teresa, I'm super excited to welcome you to the Product Science Podcast. Um, For any of our guests who don't know much about you, if you could start by um, sharing who you are and what you do today and how you got there, that would be great. Sure. First of all, I'm excited to be here, so thanks for having me. So let's see. If we start with today, I work as a product discovery coach. Um, I've been doing that for about the last five to seven years. Um, The first couple of years, I don't know that I had such um, dialed in on discoveries particularly. Um, but I think we've seen, um, definitely over the last 10 or 15 industries moving more towards kind of a continuous discovery model. I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, and so I've, I've really seen that that's the area of product that I just really love. And I think it's where a lot of product teams are hungry for more help. Um, so I spend most of my time these days coaching cross-functional product teams on how to adopt continuous discovery practices. I also do a whole bunch of, like my coaching is based on a curriculum that I'm constantly developing and iterating on. Um, And then I've made that curriculum available in a few other places. So I teach, I'm actually just about to teach my first public workshop in April in San Francisco. Um, I have a couple of- Congratulations. Thank you. I have a couple of online courses. um, And then I'm always experimenting with just what's the right way to get um, the right types of learning environments and tools to product teams that are eager to learn. That's awesome. So before we dive more into what you do today, I'd like to go back a little bit. I always like to hear about how people got into product management in the first place. So tell us a little bit about your journey here. Yeah. So for that question, I'll definitely start at the beginning. Um, I was really fortunate in that as an undergraduate, I was introduced to the world of kind of human computer interaction. So got exposed to design and kind of human centered design very early on in my career. Um, I actually left college naively thinking that's just how business worked. Of course, we would start with our customers um, and then, of course, was shocked to learn otherwise. Um, So even as a 22-year-old, I was really frustrated with the lack of the voice of the customer and the businesses that I was working in Mm -hmm. um, and really just was an advocate for that from day one. Um, Often got myself into a little bit of trouble as the sort of squeaky wheel employee who wanted to do things a different way. And I, so my first job out of college, it was, I wanted to do work as a designer, but this was 1999 and there wasn't a lot of companies hiring designers. So I actually started out in a hybrid role between a front end software developer and an interaction designer. And then over the course of the next 10 years, I always worked in hybrid roles, roles, some combination of software development design. Eventually I had a boss tell me that really what I was doing was product management. I'd never even heard of what I never worked anywhere with product managers, had no idea what that meant, Um, but I think he was right. I really, from day one, had really focused on customer needs, what can we build to address those needs, and really just looking at the the whole holistic challenge. Um, And then 
most of my employee experience was at really early stage startups. So I got some good exposure to kind of how business worked and was really lucky. Like in my late 20s, I was an executive at a startup. By 32, I was the CEO of a startup. Um, and so I got some really awesome just executive experience at a pretty young age. And then that really helped with really developing my ability to kind of think across an organization and really understand business needs. And then that really refined my thinking on how do we shape our product practices to be supportive of our businesses and not just tangential. I know a lot of designers get stuck feeling like they have to be the voice of the customer and everybody in the business is the voice of the business. And there's this natural tension. Um, and I really felt like that's silly. A business shouldn't have that tension. They should be the business needs should be met by meeting the customer's needs. Um, mm -hmm. And so a lot of that, I think I honed during those years of kind of being an executive and just trying to reconcile that tension. Um, and then ultimately, I saw the same problems everywhere I went. And that's that most product teams don't spend enough time with their customers. Um, most businesses are making business first decisions instead of customer first decisions. So I just decided I wanted to uh, kind of step out of the full-time employee life and spend my time working with teams. There's a lot of things in there that are really sort of fascinating. And uh, so thank you for walking us through the whole, the whole story or, you know, the abbreviated version, but a lot of details around it. Um, if I could for a minute, I actually want to step back because I, I imagine some of our listeners are um, newer to the industry and the statement you made about how the not a lot of companies were hiring designers back in the late 90s. Can you, uh, can you explain a little more? Like, why, why is that? And do you think it's changed? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so if we think about the late 90s, ooh, I think there were designers. I mean, I think most companies I worked at had a designer or two. They were more of the visual design school. Like, um, this was an era where I think, like on the internet, like the thought leaders were debating about little D design and big D design and information architecture versus interaction design and user experience design versus visual design. Um, and it was really this kind of convoluted mess of people trying to carve out what ultimately became UX, right? What we've now commonly referred to as UX. And it was just, um, it's not that designers didn't exist and that UX folks didn't exist and there weren't plenty of H, like human-centered folks at that time. It's that I think most businesses didn't fully recognize that as a role yet. Um, and so a lot of those people were bringing that mindset from other roles, which is a lot of what I was doing, right? I, my first title was application software developer. Now, in my interview for that job, I talked about being human-centered and wanting to get involved in design. And I was told I would be in a hybrid role, and I was, in fact, in a hybrid role. But it wasn't, they didn't post a job rec for an interaction designer. I don't even think they knew. I think I introduced them to that term. And mm -hmm. I, I think, how has that changed? So I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, we saw a lot of design agencies that really did a, a lot to further the practice of UX, UX, especially in the thought leadership space. So um, I know Cooper did a ton to like um, evangelize design. Um, the Adaptive Path folks did a ton. I, there's probably dozens more that I'm just going to forget because this is almost 20 years ago. But I think that really helped. It's, what's interesting, though, is I actually think the fact that design grew up by agencies trying to sell it. It's also why design today takes a really big project mindset and why we're now seeing a big push to move more continuous. Um, so while I think those agencies did a huge service for pushing UX forward in the industry, 
we're seeing some sort of leftover side effects that I think we're still course correcting on. That's really fascinating, that element. It's something that, um, so I entered the industry a bit later. You know, I was a uh, was an avid early adopter of all the technologies. Um, I was, I myself was in, uh, in college in the early to mid 2000s. And, um, and so when I started, uh, you know, going out and really joining the industry more in the late 2000s, um, there was enough conversation about UX and um, at least in the I mean, I was started with the thought leaders and then went to the companies. Like I read everything I could. And so I got into the companies and I was like, this isn't exactly what they were talking about in the books. <laughs> yep. um, but one of the things that I think it took me a lot longer to realize is the effect of the the agency model. And I I was surprised when I first started encountering it because I had read, you know, these great Agile Manifesto books and things about UX and human-centered design. And, and then... Um, and then I got to companies where people were trying to even treat their internal designers like they were an agency inside the company. And I was just kind of scratching my head, like, why, why are we doing it that way? What's happening here? <laughs> but I love how you kind of put it in context with the history of how that developed. Yeah, and I think, I think what's important to recognize is even in the 90s, they were really great designers doing great work. I mean, we were just talking about Marty Kagan before we started this interview, and most of his full-time employee experience was in the 90s and the early 2000s. And he obviously, if we look at what he's done for furthering the practice of product management, he obviously was doing great work back then. And I know folks at Google that were in the late 90s that were already thinking about being human-centered and really committed to good design. Um, there were folks at Yahoo, they were, right? It's not that it didn't exist. I think it's that um, it wasn't a norm. I mean, even today we see companies that are hiring their first UX designers. I think uh, the William Gibson quote, like the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed, applies really well here, right? And I think that's when we, you talked about reading how all these teams worked and how this, how this should work in practice, and then you went to your work and it didn't work that way. I think that's what we're seeing. Like, I think it's great that people are talking about like, what are the best practices and what are some of the best teams doing. But I think it's also really important to recognize that it's going to take a long time for the whole industry to catch up. And we're 30 years in, and it's still taking a long time for, for this to catch up. And I think that um, one of the things I don't like about what I do, because I tend to write about the like most leading edge practices, oftentimes I'm in a position where people are telling me, I'm making them feel bad about how they work today, right? Like they really, they're desperate to work this way and they just don't know how to get there. And I think the important thing in all of this is to remember that change is slow and it takes a lot of time. We're talking about really big cultural changes in business. Um, and so I think it's not, I definitely don't want to paint the impression that there weren't very many good human-centered people working in the 90s. I just think it's a mindset that has been very slow for business to adopt and probably will continue to be slow for business to adopt. Yeah. I, and I think that's actually um, a wonderful parallel uh, to the the world of product management and um, you know evidence based and product management and continuous delivery and continuous discovery and you know talking to users all the time those those are things too that um, maybe were even a bit behind where the design world was and how they got to the place where startups at least usually know they need a UX designer right um, mm -hmm. but they're still confused about when they need a product manager 
Um, yeah. I mean, I see that anyways. Do you see that? Yeah, product is such a product management is such an interesting role in that I think companies actually go too far on either extreme and that they wait way too long to hire a product manager or they hire way too many. I think finding that right balance is really hard because the way we define the role is continuing to evolve pretty quickly, right? So depending on who you talk to, you should have product owners and product managers. Maybe you just have product managers to do both. Maybe you have um, business analysts, who, right? It's kind of a mess. I think the role of product manager is very similar to where we were in that late 90s, early 2000s with this idea of UX. And I think what's funny about that is product management is an older function than UX. But I think the internet product manager or the digital product manager is really morphing into a new role. And I think it's way less about a particular role, but the product team and this idea of like, what does it mean? What, what does it mean to make cross-functional team decisions? Because that idea is developing at the same time that the product manager role is evolving. It muddies the waters a little bit, and I think everybody's generally confused. Um, so I don't, I don't know that it's that they don't know whether or not they should have product managers. I think it's just that there's so much noise around this. Like, is the product manager the CEO? The product manager is not the CEO, right? Like, there's, you're going to find somebody to argue all sides. And so I think that's a challenge when we're talking about who and when and how many should a company be hiring. Oh, that's really well said. So one of the things that you just mentioned that I want to hear more about is uh, sort of the evolving perspective on product teams um, versus the, you know, the role of the product manager. What do you, um, what do you teach teams today about that? What is, what is um, you know, your perspective on what people should be doing and what the role of the team is? Yeah, so I tend to work with the trio or the triad. So that's the product manager the tech lead and the design lead. Uh, sometimes if it's a data product, there's a data analyst in there. Um, so it kind of depends on the type of team that I'm working with. But I think generally, um, first of all, I think people spend way too much time trying to define these roles. Part of that is because I've always worked across them and I don't actually think setting clear boundaries between them is a good thing. Because no two UX people are the same, no two product managers are the same, no two tech leads are the same. And I think what's far more important to say, given the people that we have on this particular team, how do we leverage each other's strengths and each other's expertise? And I think that's a culture change for business. Like in business, we really want to draw nice lines on, a, on an org chart. We want to draw clear boundaries and we want to know who's responsible for what. Whereas I think product practices is really pushing us to learn how to be a true cross-functional collaborative team. And I think that's a really good thing. So while I think it's probably most likely that your um, designer is going to do the design work and your engineer is going to write the code and your product manager is going to manage stakeholders and maybe dive into analytics a little deeper and really understand the business context a little bit deeper. Those are our traditional roles. I actually think it's important that the whole trio be well-versed in some of all of that, right? So I'm not arguing that a designer needs to write code or a product manager needs to design, but I think that... Um, one of the things that I learned as an executive that was really valuable in my career was learning how to think across the business. So not just thinking from my point of view, but looking at how do we coordinate across the business and how do we get all of these um, different organizations and functions working well together. And I think a product team is a microcosm of that. It's if we want to build a really good software product, we 
need all three of these perspectives. We need them to work really well together. We need to leverage all three areas of expertise. And so I think traditionally we're not used to working that way. And so there's a whole bunch of learning that has to happen. And a lot of that is setting your ego aside, not really worrying about like, what's my turf, what's your turf. Um, and that's just, it requires a lot of adult behavior, which we don't always see in the workplace. <laughs> Amen to that. Um, one of the things that, that just made me think about is whether you have any examples that um, might help uh, illustrate the the way that you got to that learning. So, you know, maybe when you were an executive, I'm just curious, like you kind of point back to what you learned about the cross-functional value and, and um, how important it was to see across the business. How did you come to that? Yeah. So my first executive role was as a head of product. Um, and one of the things that drove me nuts was I could not believe um, that our CEO wasn't doing more work to align our executives. Right. So as the product leader, I had a product vision that went in one direction and our head of sales had a product vision that went in a totally different direction. And it was my job to reconcile that. But we would sit in executive meetings and debate and never agree, never align. And so we had our sales team going one direction and our account management team going another direction and our product team going another direction. And it was a ton of work. It was a ton of work to try to get everybody to move in one direction. I mean, that's not just all on the CEO, that's on all of us on that executive team, right? It's all of our collective responsibility to make sure we're all moving in the same direction. Um, but it was really easy because I think business culture reinforces silos. It was really easy for the head of sales to think about what's gonna win the next sale. And that was his job, like he, it was his job to do that. But it was my job to think about what's gonna win the market. And it wasn't always the same as what's gonna win the next sale. And I think a really well-functioning cross-functional team is making those trade-offs and balances where we're doing some to win the next sale and we're doing some to win the market. Um, and I don't, I don't know a lot of well-functioning executive teams. This is a genuinely hard problem. Every CEO probably will tell you their hardest challenge is keeping alignment at that team level. Um, and that's not a knock, right? Executives are smart, experienced, seasoned people. That's why they're executives. But I think working cross-functionally is genuinely hard and staying aligned is genu genuinely hard. And so when we push a lot of decision-making down to the individual product team level, we're taking this really hard challenge that even seasoned executives struggle with and we're asking our product teams to solve that challenge as well. But we're not teaching them how to do it. In fact, everything in the business is reinforcing work in your silos. We set... Uh, KPIs or OKRs for each of the individuals, but not a shared team one, right? So the engineers focused on performance, um, technical performance, and the product managers focused on a business outcome. And they're at odds with each other, right? And maybe the designer is focused on um, adhering to a design pattern library, right? And all of that is great. All those things probably need to happen, but they also need a shared goal and they need a way of aligning their disparate needs. And I think that's um, new to a lot of folks. Yeah, that's uh, really helpful. And it made me think about the boardroom conversations and the, the executive team conversations and how many times uh, it's a lot easier to find a company where people are not agreeing <laughs> than yeah. it is to find a company where they all know what their mission is and how they're going to you know, get to that, what that vision even looks like and that they're all on the same page. And I, think that, I actually think that disagreement is really good. I think it's one of 
I think um, point perspective disagreement and conflict is, is a really positive thing in business. Um, I know in a lot of the sort of problem solving research and decision making research, we know that the more different perspectives we take into account, the more likely we're to make, we are to make better decisions. I think what's hard is that we don't always um, then make a joint decision. And that's when I work with teams and when I work with them on how to collaborate as a cross-functional team, a lot of my emphasis is on, you know, you can divide and conquer, do what you need to get your work done. But when you get to a point where you need to make a critical decision, that's when you need to come together and make a joint decision. Um, and I think that's the piece that we don't always follow, follow up on, right? We get one person making a decision over here that doesn't align with another decision over here. So how do you help them um, come together to make those decisions and even know when they should do that and when they should just do it on their own? Yeah, a lot of um, what I work with teams on is visual synthesis. So how to use external visuals um, to capture uh, what they understand about their space, to capture where they think they are. We can get into more specifics um, so that they, it's, they're building a shared understanding. And I think this is actually um, a really important piece. I think language, the reason why I focus so much on visual synthesis is I think language is very vague and it's easy for us to have a conversation and think we're aligned and then walk out of the room and each go slightly different directions. So I think our intent is good. We think we did the work to align, but really there's some gaps between what we're aligned around. And so I think um, product teams specifically can do this through customer journey mapping, experience mapping, um, as a way to synthesize around what do we know about our customer. They can do process maps for what do we know about how our business works. They can do story maps for what do we know about what we think we're gonna be building. I have an opportunity solution tree, which is a visual that helps the team align around um, how are we going to reach our desired outcome? And it's more of a discovery roadmap. And I think all of these tools really help us get concrete and specific because they're visual. And by externalizing our thinking, we're be better able to examine it. We're better able to justify it. We're better able to say, I agree with this, but I don't agree with that. And I think it just helps us have much better conversations. Whereas without it, I think we're trying to do too much cognitively in our working memory. I think we're trying to um, communicate in broad strokes and kind of hand wave our way through hard conversations. Um, and I think that leads to really misaligned decision-making. That's awesome. I love how you bring the, the science of decision-making and the cognitive uh, capabilities into that. So I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you mentioned building shared understanding and we could go deeper. Um, so let's do that. Let's go a little deeper. Like when you first start working with a team, um, what do you get started with? What are the, what are the first challenges you see and, and how do you help them with those? Yeah. So the very first thing I want my teams to do is to start building a habit of interviewing customers every week. Um, What's and We talked a little bit earlier about kind of the design agency model really influencing UX. And I think what that has done is now that most companies have internal UX teams and a lot are moving towards UX as an embedded resource on a cross-functional team, we don't, we've outgrown the, the, the agency model, right? We don't, we don't need to interview six to 12 um, customers in a week, three weeks from now to answer a big research question or we might have a research report six weeks from now. What a product team that's shipping every week needs is answers to their weekly questions, right? And that's how do we expose this feature in a way that makes sense to the customer? Um, how should it work? What do we label things? 
Um, there's lots of little questions that come up every single week that we want to infuse with customer feedback. And so because we're making product decisions every day, I argue that at a minimum, a product team should be interviewing their customers every week. Um, this is really hard for most teams. I think they are still working under a project mindset. Maybe they interview once a month or once a quarter. They're interviewing half a dozen people. They're doing affinity mapping. They're creating research reports. That's not something you can do every week. So I think the first thing is really reframing what we mean by interviewing, um, doing much smaller research activities. So maybe you're not doing a full-blown hour-long interview with a 40-question discussion guide, but you're doing two or three 15-minute conversations that, where you ask one question and really helping teams understand this idea of continuous interviewing and the benefit of continuous interviewing. In week one, the hardest part to get that kind of cadence going is recruiting. Most companies, when they say, I want to interview a customer, it takes three weeks to get an interview on the schedule. So we focus a lot on automating the recruiting process. Um, the way that I highlight that for teams is imagine if you could wake up in the morning, come to work on a Monday, look at your calendar, and there's already an interview on your calendar and you didn't have to do anything to get it there. Now doing a customer interview is just like going to any other meeting in your week. Um, you're more likely to do it than to not do it. So that's what we're shooting for. Um, and so that's one of the very first activities I have the team do. Um, the second thing I have them do right off the bat is I have them do a drawing exercise where they're basically drawing what they think their customer's experience is with their problem area. So not necessarily with their product, it's kind of with their opportunity space. And this starts as an individual exercise and then they share their perspectives with each other. And then they do a group exercise to align around a team vision of what they think their customer's context looks like. And then they're using their interviews to test that team vision and to continue to evolve and iterate on it. So from week one, they're starting with a weekly cadence of interviewing and they're starting with visual synthesis of what do we know and how do we communicate together. And how long does it take um, for them to, to establish a habit of that? For you to feel like, well, if they had to stop working with me tomorrow and I were to come back to them in six months, I, I'm more confident than not that they'd still be doing this thing. Yeah, so I work with teams for 12 weeks um, and our goal in those 12 weeks is to develop sustainable habits so that after coaching, they're able to be a high-functioning, continuous discovery team on their own. Um, most of the teams that I work with get there in those 12 weeks. Um, we're at a point where I think most product folks want to work this way. They're reading about it in blogs. They're hearing about it in conferences. They're hearing about it on podcasts. They're excited about it. Um, and I think there's a gap in how they learn how to do it. So usually the teams that I'm working with they're so eager to learn the how, they're super engaged, they do their homework, they do everything they can to kind of meet their weekly goals. And by the time they come out of coaching, they're hitting a cadence and have built sustainable habits. I do occasionally get a team where maybe the product manager is a little resistant. Usually it's people later in their career because they've had 20 years of experience of success and there's a little bit of, um, I know my role, I know what works? Why are you changing, redefining my whole role? I get a little bit of that. Um, it's not just people later in their career. Um, it really can be anybody. And it's, I work as a coach and the, what's hard about coaching is I can't force you to learn anything, right? You have to be a willing participant. Um, but I don't think I've ever had a team of willing participants that weren't able to build the habit. I have worked with teams where their target market is teeny tiny or super hard to get in front of, 
and a weekly cadence is harming. Um, and so what I tell those teams is, okay, if you're interviewing quarterly, let's try to get to monthly. Once you're at monthly, let's try to get to biweekly. Once you're at biweekly, let's try to get to weekly. Um, and it really is this idea of continuous improvement. It's not that weekly is this hard and fast rule. In fact, I have teams that are doing almost daily. That's a team that's more mature, that has more mature recruiting practices, that has really um, lots of ways to automate the recruiting process. And so it really, it's so team dependent, which is why I love getting to work with a team over time in the context of their own work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, tell us a little more, I, just because I, I don't want anyone, I don't want to let anybody off the hook that may be there in this case and that they, um, their audience is really hard to find. How do you identify, um, you know, uh, when that is, um, how would a person in a team, you know, that doesn't have the perspective that you have, know that their audience is a little harder to get to and they should try more things or what do they do? Yeah. So the first thing is no matter who your audience is, you can always do more than you're doing today. So I think this is a really important mindset. I mean, it is the continuous improvement mindset, right? It's not just about continuously improving our products. It's about continuously improving our practices. I mean, I think this is right out of the agile manifesto. Um, and so I think this is, no matter what you're doing today, you could always be doing more. You could always be getting, like I said, we make product decisions all day, every day. We really want to be customer centric. We want to infuse as many of those decisions with customer feedback, which means I look at it as, can we reduce our cycle time between customer touch points, right? So I have people say, how many hours a month should I be talking to customers? Wrong metric. Reduce the cycle time between touch points. So you're reducing the time that you go without getting customer feedback. So that's the first thing. Now, I'll give some examples of markets that are hard to recruit in. I worked with a company where their customers were Canadian medical schools. There's not very many of them, right? I worked in a business where our customers were US universities. There's not that many of them. It's a pretty small market. I mean, there's lots, but if you think about like that market versus Facebook's market, right? It's night and day. Um, so when you're talking about really small markets, you need to be careful because you don't want to um, burn out your customers on interviews. Now, I, I hate saying that because most people think that they're going to burn out talking to their customers if they talk to them once ever or if they talk to them twice ever. And the reality is a customer is like, if we are, if we are building a product that they value, they are going to want to talk to you. They're going to want you to give you your feedback. They're going to want to hear they're going to want to share their world with them. Every human being loves talking about themselves and what they do. So I think it is important to keep that in mind. And for really small markets, what I recommend doing is, is a combination of things. One is set up a customer advisory board, not where you're meeting with them as a focus group, but where you require participation on the customer advisory board that they participate in one interview each month. Now remember, an interview could be as short as 15 minutes. Now you need to incentivize that customer to do that. So they probably need an ongoing incentive, maybe like a monthly discount on their subscription if they participate in that interview. That gives you an ongoing relationship with a customer where you're able to go deep over time. That's really valuable. Now you wanna supplement that with another way of recruiting because you don't wanna build your product around a dozen customers, right? So you need some ad hoc interviews coming in through other sources. Um, but if you have a really teeny tiny market, Customer advisory boards can help a ton with that. Uh, other markets that can be really hard 
Um, if you're selling to high powered Fortune 100 CEOs, if you're selling to physicians, if you're selling to basically people where they don't have a lot of time and your $100 incentive is meaningless to them, right? In those types of environments, there's a few different things. There's recruiting services that you can pay to find those folks. Now you're gonna pay for those interviews. Some of them charge as much as a thousand or $1,500 interview. So that's a good way to get started, but it's not sustainable over time. So for really people that are really busy, I think you have to think about what's a teeny tiny ask where you give them a ton of value in return. So a teeny tiny ask might be um, to, to, to ask a physician for five minutes in the hallway at a trade show they're already going to. And give them a, a gift certificate to a restaurant near the conference in exchange, right? Now, what's nice about a gift certificate to a restaurant, it's gonna seem more valuable than the equivalent dollar value, right? Because if I'm a physician making a good salary, $100 doesn't mean very much to me. But if you treat me my dinner, that's while I'm traveling and away from home, that's a little more valuable to me, right? So there's ways to think about teeny tiny ask, high value. Um, you can use each interview to get other interviews. Who else should I talk to? Would you be willing to introduce me to them? Um, and I think really this is where you can learn from your sales team. If you can't find people to interview, you're not going to find people to sell to. So you can use your account management teams, your sales teams to help you with, I'm looking for people like this. How do you typically reach them? You know, the other one that I get a lot that I'll share is um, people that work in regulated industries. So I hear from a lot of banks, you know, in banking, there's a ton of regulation on how you talk to your customers, how you engage with them. And um, their, their support staff go through training to be compliant with those regulations. A lot of banks don't train their product folks. And so then they say, we can't interview our customers because we're not allowed to talk to them. If that's your context, if you're really getting pushback from your organization where they're protecting the customer relationship, whether it's because your sales team wants to own it or because you're in a regulated environment and there's real reasons why you can't reach out to them. What I would recommend is don't worry about whether or not you're, they're your customer. Interview people who have the problem you're trying to solve. So if I work at a bank and I'm not allowed to talk to my bank's customers, what I wanna look for is based on the products and services we offer, who are the types of people that have the problems we're solving and recruit them, whether they're, they're a customer or not. And you'll still gain a ton of value. The other thing you can do is you can partner with the groups who have been through that training to help you with your interviews. Awesome. Those are, those are some really good uh, tips. I know for myself, I've been, uh, I've been practicing continuous interviewing for years, but I had previously done it, you know, within a particular environment. So I figured out how to do it there. And then when I started helping teams from a more wide set, I didn't quite know what to expect. Like when I hit a a company that had a very different market and all of a sudden it was like, whoa, those people are very different to recruit. Mm -hmm. um, so I love that you have tips sort of for everybody. So hopefully if any of our listeners um, think that they still don't know how to get to their people, like reach out to Teresa or to me and uh, we'll see if we can unblock you because yeah, um, absolutely. I think we've got a lot of, that's for me, a really big value is kind of unblocking the like you said earlier, um, you know, people are excited to do this, but they still have trouble making it happen in their own company. So, yeah. um, you know, bring us your challenges. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit more about um, how, how do you help your teams get buy-in or, or do you ever have to help your teams get buy-in for why they should be doing continuous interviewing? I think we briefly sort of talked about, maybe we touched on this before we started, but um, 
you know, the, the development over time and the, the best teams are acting differently from the other teams. I know um, a lot of times the people who are the most excited, who are the most curious, who are going out and saying, I've read all these things and this is what I think we should be doing, um, become that squeaky wheel that you described about yourself early, where they're like making their managers hate them because they're constantly trying to change the way things are happening. Um, how do they get the buy-in to make this happen in their organization? Yeah, so fortunately, I'm, I, the teams that I coach are t typically the head of product engaged me, right? So the teams that I'm working with through coaching, their, their leader has already committed to, we want to work this way. Just because the product leader is committed to working this way doesn't mean the whole rest of the organization is committed to working this way. And so even in that best scenario where the product leader has not only decided continuous discovery matters, but they're investing in training their teams, teams still get stuck on this, right? They do great discovery work and some executive helicopters in and says, build this instead. So I think one of the, regardless of where you work, I think one of the things you can do right away to help make the argument for better discovery practices is to instrument your product. And every time you release something, before you release it, document, this is what we, this is the intended impact of what we're releasing. It's important that you document that ahead of time. So if your CEO likes to come in with his or her favorite idea and you're sick of sort of being on the factory, um, the feature factory floor, cranking out ideas that simply don't turn out, what you can do is you can work with those stakeholders and say, that sounds like a great idea. Help me understand why you think we should build this. Document it. What's the impact? And document it from a metric standpoint. How do we think this feature is going to impact our business metrics? Then release it. And make sure that when you release it, you've instrumented it in a way that you can actually measure the impact that release had on those business metrics. What this does is it allows you to then start taking measurements and kind of creating a scorecard of all of your releases. Did the things we build have the intended impact we thought they would? And this can be a little bit depressing because oftentimes a lot of what we build doesn't have the intended impact. And it seems counterintuitive because what product team wants to say, hey, we built all the wrong stuff. But this is how you start to build a culture of good discovery is you can, when you built the wrong stuff, you can start asking, how could we have learned that sooner? And that reflective question will help drive your iterative improvements on how do we get better and better at discovery. And how, how can they, uh, what are your favorite tactics for how they can answer that sooner um, as they start, you know, getting down that, building a little bit of that support and realizing that um, maybe they were a little bit late in realizing something was going to fall flat, what can they do to make that faster? Yeah, I think it really depends on where they are in the sort of journey towards continuous discovery. So for a lot of teams, um, the only testing they're doing of their ideas is usability testing really late in the process. So they're still working, Marty calls it mini, Marty Kagan calls it mini waterfall, right? Where um, the product manager writes requirements, the designer designs, and then it goes into a sprint and the engineers build and then we ship it. And what happens is usually the usability testing is happening at the end of the design sprint right before it goes to engineers. And so if we learn that something as big is wrong with that design, we don't really have time to fix it, right? Because it was supposed to go in the very next sprint. And so what happens is we, we fix the small cosmetic stuff, but we don't fix the big, um, first of all, we don't even fix the big usability problems, let alone desirability problems. Does anybody want it? Are they willing to do it? Do they need it? Um, we don't solve 
for the viability challenges of, is, is it worth building? Is this going to create value for our business? Um, we rarely spend any time on kind of the ethical questions of, is there any potential harm? Should we be doing this? Um, and so I think oftentimes that question of how could we have learned this earlier involves breaking that kind of mini waterfall process and from day one um, doing faster iterative cycles of testing assumptions, prototyping, trying and failing, trying and failing until you iterate and evolve your way towards something that's going to work. Awesome. Um, yeah, I see a lot of teams too that that think they're doing discovery because they do usability testing and uh, and they go, oh, that is better than nothing, but let's go further. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I actually think this is a really good symptom. So I think every team I talk to, especially at the beginning of coaching, thinks they're already doing continuous discovery. Um, this is awesome. This is a testament to the growth of UX and all the work UX thought leaders and, um, and more recently product manager thought leaders, what impact they're having on our industry. The vast majority of product teams are now doing some discovery activities, but I would say the majority of them are doing them from a product, a project mindset and not a continuous mindset, right? So they're um, kicking off a project and doing a bunch of research to start. So there's a research phase and then they move into the requirements and design and development stage, um, or they uh, insert usability as a step in the project flow, right? And I think we're, um, we're just starting to see really good public examples of what continuous looks like. So I think that's helping with changing the conversation. And that's a lot of the work that I like to do with my blog, um, Product Talk, is I really, I'm trying to show what continuous discovery looks like so that we can paint a really clear picture, not to make teams feel bad about what they're doing today, but to help them see what's the next step on the spectrum for them so that tomorrow looks better than yesterday. I feel like that was very meta because continuous discovery for the team and then discovery for them on their own process and getting yeah. there. <laughs> um, I guess that uh, feels like a good time then to ask um, how you've been applying these to your own business. And, um, you know, I think, uh, Clearly, you know what great uh, continuous product discovery looks like, but then there's also the act of teaching it and getting other teams to learn it. And I'm curious to hear, um, you know, have you been applying these principles to do that? And what does that look like? And, and what are those challenges been? Yeah, so I use all the same tools that I teach my teams. I have customer journey maps and experience maps that reflect a team's journey of adopting more continuous discovery practices. Um, I use the opportunity solution tree. I actually look at how do I help the whole organization make this shift, not just a product team? So I focus my work on the product team level, but the reason why my opportunity solution tree reflects the whole organizational change is because my teams that I work with won't be successful if the rest of the organization doesn't also make the shift. And so I like to partner with other consultants on working on the other pieces, right? So um, Barry O'Reilly does a ton of work at the leadership level and coaching leaders. And so I love to bring him in and be like, let's help these leaders set good outcomes. Let's help them understand how to manage teams when they're working on a continuous discovery way. Um, there's other consultants that work with individuals. I focus on working with teams. So kind of depending on what, what an organization needs, I want, I want to look at that whole map. And then I look at my curriculum and my services as, as a solution, but there's other solutions in the market that I can help bring and guide those organizations to. Um, to kind of help them solve all of their needs. 
And then um, I don't, I used to do weekly product team interviews with folks, but now um, because I spend so much time coaching teams, I kind of use that as my continuous interviewing practice. Um, I do still interview leaders pretty consistently um, and really just trying to understand what are leaders' challenges with um, shifting their organization towards working this way. But yeah, I pretty much apply the exact same tools to my own business. Um, and then your question of kind of what are the challenges of teaching this stuff? I view, I view my job as a product, like I am a product manager. My product is my curriculum. And I actually only coach two days of the week. The other three days I'm working full time on improving my curriculum. And that is um, really important to me. Uh, to me, it's the biggest asset I have in my business. I think it's one of the hardest products I've ever worked on. Everybody learns a little differently. You got to explain things lots of different ways. Different ones are going to connect. Um, and so I just love that process. And I run experiments. I try some things with some teams and other things with other teams. Um, I coach in cohorts. And at the end of every cohort, I do and I map each team's progress, the pace through the curriculum. And I use that as feedback for how, where their points in the curriculum need to be improved. Um, and so every, every cohort, after every cohort, I take a couple weeks off from coaching and I do a deep dive on trying to address the challenges that I uncovered during that cohort. Um, so I look at it as I'm a product manager applying all of this stuff to my product that is my curriculum. That's awesome. I love that you spend so much time on the improving and the reflection part. Um, I think that maybe we could touch on that a little bit more, even just what it means for any product manager, um, not necessarily for someone who's building a curriculum, but, um, you know, we talked about continuous discovery and interviewing and prototyping and, you know, touched on testing and experimenting, but where does reflection and, um, you know, synthesizing learnings come in to the process? Yeah, I, um, I think it was Paul Graham wrote an article called, I think it was Paul Graham wrote an article called um, Maker versus Manager Schedules. Right. And there's yes, this idea of like, huh. if you're going to make stuff, you really need a long period of uninterrupted time. Whereas when you're managing stuff, you are pulled into meetings and you're constantly interrupted and there's a lot of ad hoc, this or that. And for most jobs, both are required. Um, but I think it's really important to have maker days and manager days. And so my coaching days are my manager days. So those are the days that I do all of my client facing work. Um, and then I have two and a half days of create day. So I do have a three hour block on one of my maker days for all my administrative phone calls. Um, actually, we're doing this interview during that afternoon block. Um, and it really, I have found that I need long stretches of inter uninterrupted time to create anything. Like I just need, I read a lot. I need a lot of just thinking space. Um, I need a lot of like wandering through the woods. <laughs> I have no idea where this thing is going. I mean, I think I've written 200 blog posts and I have um, 120 drafts started that I have not completed, right? So I, I write a ton that goes nowhere that I'm sure someday will turn into something. Um, and I think having that much maker time in my calendar really allows for that. Um, and that's my schedule during the weeks that I'm coaching. I actually take um, three extended breaks during the calendar year off from coaching altogether. And that's 100% maker time. Um, and that's really where like my continuous interviewing course was the product of one of those maker months. Um, I'm working on an opportunity solution tree course that will probably get done in April, which is my next maker month. 
Um, right. So it's like, I really try to balance the ability to stop and, and think and synthesize. Cause I just think that's what's required to create. And I think that's true for all product teams. Like I think I, when I was doing product manager interviews, I would ask product managers to share a screenshot of their calendar with me. And most product managers are triple booked every hour of their day. And I don't know how good product work happens when that's your calendar. And so I think for product folks, it's really important to be ruthless about your calendar and to push back and not go to every meeting you're invited to. It feels good, right? It feeds the ego to like feel like we're needed in all of those meetings. But I think to do good product work, we really have to carve out time to think and to create. It's definitely a skill for people to be able to push back, but it's also a really important skill, right, for product managers to, to be able to do that. So uh, if you don't mind, I'd actually love to hear um, a little bit about your... It sounds like you've been incredibly thoughtful about the design of your weeks and you were talking about your work, but, um, but I'm sort of curious how you got to that and if you've kind of designed your life and your work-life balance and things like that, because I'd like to hear from people about, you know, we're more than just our work days. Yeah. So I love this question. So every year in December, I do a big annual review of how did the year go and I do planning for the next year. Uh, one of the questions, so I spend most of the year focusing on how to serve my clients' needs. In that review process, I focus on what changes am I going to make in my business to better meet my needs? And so the question that I ask myself is, how can I make my business even more awesome for me? And that question is what's fueled a lot of the, my schedule changes and the cadence of my work. I love coaching, but I am super introverted. And when I spent all day on the phone, I literally would never see my friends because I was just done with people. Um, and it, it's partly why I only coach on two days of the week. Um, I take a ton of time off because I know I need it to recharge. I um, really push the envelope on like how I can mix working and playing. So I live in Portland, Oregon. Uh, in the last four days, I've cross-country skied in three out of the last four of them. Um, I took Friday off because it's a maker day and I could trade it for another day at some other point. Um, that flexibility is really important to me because if we get fresh snow, I want to be out playing in it. Um, whereas if it's just raining and I don't want to be outside, I'll gladly work on a Saturday. Um, and so a lot of my, that reflective question at the end of the year is to really drive, how do I improve my quality of life? And then that frees me up the rest of the year to focus on how do I improve my client's quality of life? That's amazing. Um, I'm going to try to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's a really powerful question. <laughs> if I can copy, if I may copy from you, I will try to do that. Um, awesome. I actually, well, um, I wrote a blog post in January called The Power of Saying No. It mm -hmm. was actually one of the outputs of that annual review process. So one uh -huh. of the things I do is I just reaffirm, this is what I'm going to say yes to, this is what I'm going to say no to. Mm-hmm. Yep. I read that article. Um, and I was like, yes, this is good. Uh, and I've been working on it myself, you know, as, um, obviously I've been doing product for years and learned how to say no pretty early, but, um, but it's interesting. It's it, for me, it's been a different experience applying that to running my own business and, um, what are, you know, I'm used to saying no to people who are asking me to build a feature. I'm not as used to saying no to, you know, go to that conference, talk to that person, help this person. And so I've had to yeah. like work up, um, you know, my prioritization and my filtering for that. And, um, 
and so I used your your post as inspiration. And uh, this is actually one of the hardest things for me to do. I get a ton of email. I get Twitter requests, LinkedIn requests, I, a ton. You know, I spent most of my career as the only product manager at an early stage startup, trying to learn everything on my own. I really want to help the people who reach out to me because I really like learned so much from other people who blogged when I was that individual product manager. But if I said yes to every request, I would not be able to work. Um, and so I've, it's even though like every time I say no, it breaks my heart a little bit. I've had to develop templates and I now literally reply with a template um, because it's the only way I can get through all of it. And it's, I even have an assistant who helps me with this because I'll say yes to things I should not be saying yes to. And she'll even see things on my calendar and be like, I'm going to tell them you're not going to do that, which is that's great. A, right? That's having a really good assistant. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's awesome. I, uh, I also, yeah, it's, you know, I do my fair share of reflection and I've realized that, you know, saying yes too easily is a, is a, a weakness that I have. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to tell the people that I work with that this is something I need their help with and they can call me out on it. Yeah. <laughs> because sometimes you just got to lean on other people, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, this has been so much fun and so enlightening. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your insights. And um, I want to uh, sort of wrap it up with, if there are any, you know, major, major thoughts or just recaps that you want um, people who are on the journey to um, trying to do better continuous product discovery, you know, what is your advice for them? What do you want yeah. them to have as their takeaway? I think the big one is that I think when we read about how other teams work, we learn to read about best practices, we hear a talk at a conference, it's really easy to adopt the default mindset of, Here's why that won't work at my company. And I think we miss a lot of lessons because we're not open to them. And so I think the best thing teams can do is flip that mindset. Even if it sounds like it's completely irrelevant to you, look for the one or two nuggets that you can apply to your company or to your team or to your context. Um, and I think that will help fuel your learning way more than, so I catch myself doing it all the time, right? Like, you're at a conference and you're like, oh, that's a great idea, but that wouldn't work for this, this, and this, right? So the more that you can flip that on its head, every article you read, every podcast you listen to, every talk you hear, what's the one or two nuggets you're going to apply? Because I think we live in a very like high information consumption um, kind of world, but we rarely act on it. So just adopting this habit of when I consume something, how is it going to change what I do? Awesome. Um, all right. Well, final question for you is how can people find you if they want to know more? Yeah. So I blog at producttalk.org entirely about continuous discovery. Uh, I focus a lot on sharing examples of what good continuous discovery looks like. Um, I also offer online courses at learn.producttalk.org. I'm active on Twitter at ttorres. That's T-T-O-R-R-E-S. Those are kind of my primary channels. All right. Great. Well, we'll also include those in the show notes and, um, We'll be excited to share that and um, we'll let you know, you know, if people have questions and thoughts for you. Uh, yeah, perfect. Thank you so much for your time today, Teresa. It was a true pleasure. Oh, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Hey, Holly here. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode as much as I enjoyed making it. I wanted to share with you that at East Shore Product Science, we run lots of workshops and we'd love to have you join us. We teach the product science method, a step-by-step -step process for evaluating product opportunities and laying the foundations for high growth product development. 
We help product leaders and startup founders identify the right products and features to build and develop the support to do so. We do this at private workshops. We also do it at public workshops, both in person and online. If you'd like to learn more, check it out at h2rproductscience.com workshops. The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. 